Brethren says, uh, we are in week two of our three-part series. We're in the middle of a three-part series uh, called Anthems of the Age, where we take the, a popular culture, a popular song in our culture, and have a conversation with it. What, what makes it popular? Uh, what sort of message is it uh, uh, proclaiming? And how does this song speak to uh, the, Christian, um, the Christian story uh, and the Christian life? And if there was ever a popular song in South Africa, this is it, isn't it? Uh, this is one of the most popular songs. It's played at weddings. You remember your aunt's wedding. Uh, this is the song that broke it all off. Uh, people started dancing when this one came on. Um, you remember at the staff end of year function, depending on the melanin content of your DJ, this song was, this song was there. Uh, and it, uh, it is a, a catchy tune and a catchy song. It's played even at rugby stadiums. Just by the show of hands, how many of us actually have heard this song? Okay, at 8 o'clock service, there was like 5% of people. <laughs> and throughout the sermon, they were looking at me like, what is this guy doing? We want the regular guy. <laughs> so at um, one of the rugby games, it was around 2018 in October, the New Zealand hacker uh, went on, and then straight after that, somebody played Sister Bettina. So if New Zealand Haka was the display of New Zealand culture, uh, this is a display of our culture. It is definitely an anthem of our age. Uh, somebody put up a tweet saying uh, that this song should be made an, a national anthem. Uh, that's how popular it, it is. Now, my own story with this song, uh, 2005, uh, grade 11, uh, I still remember, uh, I used to take a taxi from Pokeng, which is in the northwest, to Tlabani, which is the township there, uh, in this brown and white uh, taxi, and it has these massive speakers uh, just by my head, and this is the first time, that's the first time I heard this song, Sister Bettina, and the speakers were vibrating, uh, it was fire, the beat was fire. Now, just to give you a context, I was a Christian by then. Um, and I was one of those Christians who were very conservative. Uh, we went to church. Uh, we wore white and pointy shoes. Uh, that was a sign of uh, your faith in the Lord to channel uh, the power of God. Um, you, you read only the King James Bible and prayed in King James uh, Bible um, language. Uh, so that is who we were. No dating, no alcohol. Definitely no worldly music because it will corrupt your innocent soul. Uh, so that is who we were. So hearing this uh, song for the very first time, by the way, this is, if you thought this was um, a bit distasteful, uh, there is an original version of this song, which is way more um, uglier than this. And first time I hear the song, the first um, reaction is I'm, I'm repulsed that somebody would say such things in a song and that it will play publicly. But then, as you get into the beat, Sister Bettina has that thing of working its way in your system. And, and I felt like Simba, that my life was boring. Um, I needed to loosen it up, you see. Uh, the reason we don't have the lyrics is that the song does have lyrics, but it also has attitude. And the attitude of the song is just, man, we young and active. Let's just leave us alone uh, to enjoy our youth. Uh, just let, let us just um, enjoy. Um, just for those who don't know the song, let me just uh, 
um, just explain a bit about the song, came out in 2005. It wasn't meant to be a song. Mgarime was at a club uh, at one o'clock, and his friend, who was a DJ, played this beat. Uh, if you knew Fruity Loops, uh, people who used to uh, make beats, this was one of the samples on Fruity Loops. And then uh, it played, and Mgarime grabbed the mic and said what he needed to say. Uh, he was drunk as anything, uh, and he said what was in his heart. Listen to what he says about the song and its lyrics. He says, there was no inspired moment to think about the lyrics or anything like that. I just told the story of what I was seeing and feeling. And what we were seeing and feeling was what the culture and where the culture was. Um, and as Black said, uh, the culture is we, uh, the air that we breathe. We live in the culture, but we also uh, speak to the culture. We also shape culture. And so this song was a way in which uh, the culture was going this way. It wanted freedom, uh, freedom to experience pleasure. But at the same time, the song shaped um, our lives. The song shaped uh, the, the culture. Now, here's the thing. The message of this song, as I said, we don't have the lyrics. Just to summarize it for you, it is about youthful pleasure and the pursuit of youthful pleasure. It's about dancing with your beer in the air. That's one of the lyrics. And looking around to those uh, to see who's willing to give it up, if you know what I mean. It's about uh, going on vacation to Durban to blow all your heart and money on sex, alcohol, drugs, and women. It is about partying till you drop. The chorus says, see, lubu It means we are enjoying our youth. The literal translation is, we are chowing our youth. We are enjoying it. We are consuming it. Uh, and the attitude, as I said, is leave me alone. Uh, this song, even though you don't know it, I think it speaks to every one of us because there's something inside of us, there's something inside all of us that longs for pleasure. The deepest longings of our culture is pleasure without constraints. So don't put any boundaries on us, just let us lose uh, so that we can enjoy life. I think that's uh, something that we all aspire to, something that's deep in uh, our desires. We all have a sister Bettina in all of us. Now that's um, our culture and we want to uh, engage with it. Uh, this idea and concept, uh, those who are smart call it hedonism. And hedonism is basically, as the dictionary defines it, is the ethical theory that pleasure is the highest good and proper aim of the human life. That is what hedonism uh, is. Um, a philosopher by the name of uh, Shalom Schwartz put it this way, uh, that he defines hedonism as a person's prioritizing of pleasure as the goal relative to other, other potentially important goals. Uh, so whether you are a baby boomer here this morning, whether you are a Gen X, millennial, or Gen Z, uh, this applies to, to all of us, that we tend to, as a culture, as individuals, make pleasure the ultimate goal of our life, uh, the ultimate goal uh, that, um, that, that, that we center our meaning of life uh, into, into this. And we learn this. As Black said, we consume this in our culture. We taught from a young age uh, to aspire for this. So if you don't know the, the anthem of today, you might know another anthem 
Um, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. And if you're up there, you can sing with me. Let it go. Let it go. That's a club anthem for little kids. They learn from a very young age uh, to let it go, to seek freedom, uh, to do whatever it is that you want, to let nobody define uh, what is right and what is wrong for me. This club anthem has over so many views. Uh, Listen properly, 773 million views, close to a billion, on the one channel. On the Disney UK, it's 2.7 million views of Let It Go, Let It Go. Deep aspiration in our culture, 3.5 billion people listening to this, 3.5 billion kids uh, who are listening to, to, to this, uh, this, this song. Freedom to experience the ultimate pleasure, the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal being pleasure. That's what we want um, as a culture. Now, just as we begin, I want to put it out there, if in case you are new to the Christian faith, uh, you perhaps have uh, this idea that Christianity is a killjoy. We don't want to have any fun, uh, and we want to kill um, all the joy that is uh, left in this world. Um, That's not what I'm going to do this morning. I'm not going to bash this song or speak down on it, but I just want to have a conversation centered around um, pleasure later on. Uh, But before we get into that, let's just say that in the Christian story, pleasure isn't necessarily a bad thing in of itself. Uh, Pleasure is, in fact, a good thing uh, that God has created uh, for us. Uh, Paul Tripp, who's one of my favorite writers, he wrote a a book called Sex and Money. Uh, And in the book, he speaks about pleasure in one of the sections. And he says four things about pleasure that I think characterize the Christian message. He says, number one, that pleasure exists as a sign of the existence of one in whose arms I will enjoy the only pleasure that can satisfy and give rest to my heart. Uh, So pleasure exists to point us to the one in whose arms we can receive ultimate pleasure. The second thing that he says is that pleasure exists to put God in my face and remind me that I was made by him and for him. That is why pleasure exists. Number three, pleasure like every other created thing, was designed to put God at the center, not just of my physical joy, but of the deepest thoughts and motives of my heart. That is according to the Christian story. If you read all of Scripture, uh, you'll come to the realization uh, that pleasure is designed so that we can put God at the center, that when you taste something great, when you have life's amazing experience, you should say to yourself, wow, (laughs) there is a God who lives. Number four, he says, pleasure exists uh, to stimulate worship, not of the thing, but of the one who created the thing. So this morning, as we look at this song, let's think about that for a minute. The Christian story celebrates pleasure. Our culture desires pleasure without God. Uh, it desires to make pleasure the ultimate hope and aspiration. See, Lubu Shabbat, we are enjoying our youth. What happens to a culture, let us be honest, of people who are enjoying their youth? 
What happens to guys who had that song in 2005, 17 years later, as they are adult and living um, as uh, responsible members of society? What happens when you put them together uh, in a place like Midrand? What kind of society do we build with this um, idea, with this pursuit at the forefront um, of, of our thinking? Now, for us to do that, we're going to engage with um, a man and his words. Uh, this man is called Paul of Tarsus. Uh, he's one of the most influential uh, thinkers and fi- figures of, um, of human history, basically. Uh, Paul thought a lot about God and the culture in which he lived in and how those two things uh, speak to each other. And in each and every single letter, Paul speaks about the Christian message and then he applies it to how people ought to live. So Paul is um, quite is somebody to listen to. Uh, his own life is that he had a Damascus moment. I don't know if you've ever heard of that phrase, if you knew Church. Uh, the Damascus moment, uh, meaning a radical transformation. That phrase exists because of Paul. Uh, Paul had a radical encounter with God that would change the way he uh, viewed life. So as he speaks to this a church in, in Rome, he speaks about and um, he, he speaks about and engages with where culture is, uh, particularly non-Jewish culture that has no revelation of God written down. Uh, and so he speaks about Roman culture and first century culture, but I think it has so many similarities to our culture in Midland. 2022. What Paul says of the culture back then in Greco-Roman world is so similar to what we experience um, in our culture if we were to open uh, our eyes. Have a look at um, Romans. It's one of the letters that uh, little number 18 is, I'll call those verses. Uh, So verse 18, uh, Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, what is Paul speaking about as he looks at his culture? He uses words like ungodliness, unrighteousness. What does ungodliness really mean? Uh, Somebody described it this way. And I think it's uh, very true of our culture and of uh, the things that we feel uh, within ourselves, that ungodliness is the attempt to get rid of God And since this is impossible, it is the determination to live as though one had succeeded in doing that. The determination to live as though we had succeeded in getting rid of God uh, from the picture. When it comes to pleasure, I would say uh, that we live our lives um, with God. We want to live our lives with God out of the picture. But this is impossible. Uh, So we have at least tried to live it in such a way as to fool ourselves that we have succeeded in getting rid of him. And Paul says because of that, because of our suppression of God, because of our rejection of God, God's wrath is revealed towards our culture. You're coming in this morning and you're thinking, you see, this is why, this is why I don't come to church. Um, yes, there we go again with uh, your idea of wrath uh, you probably have this mind, this picture in mind. You know those guys with a board saying, 
Judgment is coming, repent. That's the kind of idea uh, you get in right now. You don't like the idea of an angry God. Our culture loves the idea of a, a loving God uh, who just accepts everyone um, as they are. And in some ways, I, I think I sympathize with that. I sympathize with where you are. Because uh, you might have, I don't know where you, what you've come through, what you've been through in life. Uh, perhaps you've experienced abuse of authority, uh, maybe from your own parents, uh, who had ultimate control and power over your life, and they also had uncontrollable anger. So as you think about an angry God, you're thinking, man, how can somebody have ultimate authority uh, and be angry? Surely that is not a safe being or a safe um, person. In fact, this idea is so pervasive in our culture. I don't know if you remember that movie, Noah. Uh, it came out in 2014. And the picture that, of God that we get from Noah is this angry 12-year-old who looks like he's so upset that his parents didn't buy him a PlayStation 5 for Christmas. And this angry 12-year-old has the power to drown the entire universe. Can you picture that for a moment? How unfair is that kind of idea of God? Um, that's often what our mind gravitates towards when you think about an angry God. But as you read the Christian story, you realize, you begin to realize that wrath and anger uh, in biblical terms uh, is actually not such a bad thing. Uh, wrath is an appropriate response that a good God has towards people who want to destroy his ordered world. Uh, so wrath is a proper response uh, that a holy God and a loving God should have towards people who rebel against him, uh, who rebel against his way of living in this world. What does that rebellion look like? Well, Paul says uh, humanity suppresses the truth uh, about God. What is the truth? Have a look at line number 19, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it, uh, has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he, that have been made. So they are without excuse. Uh, Paul looks at our world, and he says it's a world um, in rebellion. Uh, in fact, even if you don't have, if you are a Gentile, you don't have a law, there's something in us, wired in our DNA, to understand that there's order to, in, in this world. And not only that, but that there is a God who ordered this world. Let's think about different cultures uh, that are scattered around the, the globe, all of them have this sense and feeling that there is a supreme being. There is somebody greater than us. We may call him in different names. It may not be the concept of the Christian God, but every individual has in them uh, this inclination to know that somewhere, somehow, there is something greater than, uh, than this. But also just if you're not convinced of that, if you're sitting here this morning and consider the miracle that it is that you are alive right now, that you're breathing in and out. Isn't that a miracle? Or if you've ever put um, your ear onto a little child's heart and you hear the heartbeat and that there is a God who controls all of that. Or if you look back at a time where 
you had to think about your breath. For me, was it was when we got the results that you are posit, COVID positive, and I thought to myself, geez, I might stop breathing. I never thought that breathing is such a, a, a miracle. It is a miracle, isn't it? Um, that there is a God behind that miracle. There's a God who runs uh, this world. Yet humanity wants to suppress that reality. Why do we do that? So that we can be at the center of it all. Have a look at verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We thought we were smart, but we actually darkened in our foolish hearts. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their body among themselves. Verse 25, Because, and this is the exchange that uh, we see in our culture, uh, that we see in this ultimate pursuit of, uh, of pleasure, pleasure without any restraints, is this exchange of uh, the truth about God. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. See, there is this exchange that Paul, as he looks at his culture, that he sees. An exchange of allegiance. The people, instead of bringing ultimate allegiance, ultimate love, respect, trust to God, the creator, we worship brother and offer our ultimate allegiance to the things that he has created. Uh, in our case this morning, to pleasure. Okay, God has created it, but we take something that he has created and we make it the ultimate thing. And this is the thing that connects last week and this week's uh, message, worship, uh, that we are people and creatures who worship. Just think about that for a minute, that you are a worshiper. Think about your life. Your life is an act of worship. Think about people in Midland, uh, that teen at your estate uh, who's always walking around with uh, earphones on, uh, that waiter at Doppio Zero, who's trying to make ends meet, or that, that dad who's trying to be a good dad, dropping off their kids every single morning, or that guy stuck in his new haval on New Road. Maybe you, that guy. Maybe it's the pick-and-pay uh, teller. The one thing that we all have in common is that we are worshipers. We worship. We are worship our way through life, and you may be sitting here and you're like, man, I, I know you're not talking about me because I'm not religious. Uh, I don't worship anything or anybody. But Paul says that you do. That we all have something or somebody that we pledge our allegiance, our love, our trust to. And that thing, if it's not God, um, it is idolatry. And when we worship something that is not God, um, it takes control over our lives. It is a thing that determines the direction of our, and the values 
of our lives. It is a thing that determines our culture and the direction that it takes. And with that said, I want to quote the words of a, a man who's not a Christian who says something similar to what Paul is saying. Uh, David Wallace, he's um, a late author, and he, he presented a speech called This is Water. Very famous speech. Um, it's a very clever speech. And the context is that he's speaking to university students and he's preparing them for life. And he's wanting them to pause and think about some of the things that shape us as people, some of our value system. And here's his basic message, that just like fish in water never stops to think, wow, this is water. So also uh, is, is us. We never pause to think about the motives behind our behavior. We never pause to think about our culture. We never pause to think about the things that lead us to destructive behaviors. And he wants them to pause and think about that. And his basic message is saying that our behavior is driven by our worship. Non-Christian speaking, he wouldn't consider himself a Christian, yet what he says is so powerful. Listen to what he says. He says, in the day-to-day, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Everyone worships. We all worship something. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He then continues to say that if we don't worship something above ourselves, whatever else we worship will eat us alive. Listen to what he says about money. If you worship money and things, if that is where you tap real meaning, tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when the time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. That was a step to the heart, isn't it? That you'll die a million deaths before we actually grieve you. I wonder for you as you're listening in, what is the thing that is eating your life? What is the thing that you have served as your ultimate God? Uh, perhaps you never realized that. Perhaps you never thought that you worship, you are a worshiper. Perhaps it's sexual satisfaction as we saw last week uh, and addictions are eating your life. Maybe it is relationships like we saw last week and disappointment in relationship eats you alive. Perhaps it's that party life we saw on Sister Bettina. You just want to live it up. But your money that you earn does not fit the lifestyle that you live of every weekend being at some club uh, blowing money. And perhaps maintaining a fake lifestyle is eating you alive. Maybe it's addiction to quick, get quick, rich, get rich quick schemes. How many of us uh, get invited to those business opportunities, it's a pyramid scheme. Um, It's not going to make you rich. And perhaps greed is controlling you. What is the thing that eats you alive? What about our culture? (laughs) When you look at it, what is the thing that's eating us alive? Well, here's four newspaper titles. I'm not going to go into details. I think the titles say it all. This is a picture of our culture. 
of Sidhubu Shabit. We're eating and enjoying our youth. More than 600 girls aged 9 and 10 gave birth in 2020. Stats SA, 12 November 2021. It is a culture of pleasure, given to pleasure. Teen, teen pregnancies in South Africa jumped 60% during COVID-19 pandemic. 23 August 2021. Coronavirus and South Africa's toxic relationship with alcohol. We know all about that, right? Uh, we were smugglers or supporting smuggling uh, during the pandemic. But our country has a serious problem with this. August 11, 2020. South Africans have a massive debt program, problem, and it is getting worse. December 2019. What is happening to our culture? Are we, are we enjoying and consuming and eating our youth? Are we doing the eating or are we being eaten? Are we being eaten alive? If I would speak Zulu, this would be a punchline, but I can't speak Zulu. Um, I can speak Tuana, which is more glorious. Reja, Bosha, Bosha, Barona. See, Lubushabit, we enjoying our youth. But I would say that Rejewa, Ibusha, Barona. We're being eaten by our youth. That doesn't make English sense, but uh, you're taking with me, right? <laughs> it's a punchline that you missed. Um, <laughs> so this three different stories, this, uh, three different witnesses. One, the Apostle Paul telling us about our culture, that it's eating us alive, anything that we worship. And here's a non-Christian saying that and affirming what Paul is saying. And the stats and newspaper article affirming what is true of our culture. Listen to um, Dave Wallace again. He says, but the sneaky thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. It is water. Without ever being fully aware, sorry, they are the kind of worship that we gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. All those three witnesses affirm this very true, that when we put something else at the center of our life, like pleasure, it spirals out of control. Our culture spirals out of control. If you were to have an honest conversation, see, Lubu Shabetu isn't working for us, is it? Paul Tripp put it this way in his book. Again, love this book. Get it. Uh, if you can't afford it, uh, get rid of your Netflix account. Subscribe to a thing called Script. Uh, it is the Netflix of books, and you can get this book, uh, and you can read so many other books uh, for free on Script. Uh, but this is what Paul Tripp says uh, concerning sex and money, and when we put it at the center of our lives, he says both, both sex and money function today in the surrounding culture like spiritual solvents eating away at the very fabric of the human community. Last week's message was about drinking. This week's message is about eating. We think we're eating our youth but it is eating us. It is eating away at, our, at the very fabric of our culture. 
Both have the perverse power to master your heart, that is sex and money, and in doing so, determine the direction of your life. Both give you the buzz that you're in control, while at the same time, becoming the master that progressively changes you to their control. Pleasure does not make for a good God, right? It is a good master, it is a good servant, it does not make for a good God. When we want freedom from God, what, what happens is that we are, we get chained uh, to something else. And that thing makes for a horrible master. It progressively changes you to its control. Both are the works of the Creator's hands, but tend to promise you what only the Creator can deliver. And if there's anything that we need to get from this morning, is that no amount of pleasure can ever do what the Creator can do. No amount of pleasure can ever satisfy us. And because we've turned away as a culture to, towards pleasure, we do need somebody else to intervene. We need somebody to wake us up from our sleep and say, listen, you guys are not doing a good job in running your lives. You need a better person to run your life. You need a king to come run your life. You need a king who's going to transform you to what Paul says in verse 18, from being ungodly to being godly. From being unrighteous to being righteous people, from being people who put pleasure at the center, to being people who put God at the center. Now that takes a miracle for any human being who loves pleasure to put God at the center. So we need an intervention, a mighty intervention from God. And the beauty of the Christian story is that it says that God has come to do that for you and for me. God has come to transform faithless people to be faithful people. He's come to transform ungodly people to be godly people. Yes, in verse 18, he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. But verse 17, he says that something else, we don't have it here, but you can go look at it, Romans chapter 8, chapter 1 rather, verse 17. He says that something else is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In the gospel, gospel simply means good news, good news about a righteous God, a faithful God who is faithful to his promises in the gospel that, uh, that God is revealed. And God is faithful to his uh, promises that through the Lord Jesus, he comes again to put himself at the center of our lives. Uh, the gospel is that God has come to intervene in our lives, and to set himself up as king once again. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you and I can come to once again know this God and to put him at the center of our lives so as to enjoy ultimate pleasure. That is the Christian story. It reminds us that ultimate pleasure is found in the arms of a loving God who has created us. John Stott summarizes this Christian story in this way. I think it's so powerful. He's a late English um, preacher. He says, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. Yet God sacrifices himself for men and puts himself where only man 
deserves to be. We put ourselves in the place of God, a place of authority, but God in the Christian message has come to reverse that. He has come to put himself in our place. He's come to live a life that you and I are meant to live, a life where you put God at the center. We did not do that. We deserve the wrath and the punishment of God. Yet Jesus came to substitute himself and be in our place uh, so as to experience the very wrath of God, to be eaten alive at the cross so that we would not be eaten alive. Bazaloni, I wish I could take this mic and preach to you because that's an amen moment. Amen. God has come to uh, substitute himself uh, for us. He's come to forsake his own freedoms so that you can have freedom. Amen. He's come to get rid of his pleasures so that we can experience ultimate pleasure. Amen. I don't know who you are this morning, but that is the message that God wants you to hear this morning, that you have not done a good job of running your life. You need to turn to him, yet in of yourself, in your own power, you cannot do that. God has come and done it for you. God has come and done it for you. You need a Damascus moment. You need to come to the realization that I'm not a good king of my life. Jesus is. And to ask him to come and forgive him, forgive you. Ask him to come and bring you into his presence. Because in his presence there's fullness of joy and in his hands there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. I'm going to lead us, um, just as we end of our time together, in a word of prayer. Uh, perhaps you're here this morning and you realize that the things that you've dedicated your life to are eating you alive. And you want to tend to God. I'm going to pray a prayer to help us to tend to God. It's a simple prayer. Uh, I'm going to say it so that you can hear what the prayer says, and then I'm going to pray it with you. So if you can join me in your hearts uh, this morning. Let me read for us what this prayer is. Um, Dear God, I don't know much, but I know that I need you. I know that I need the love of God in my life. I admit that I've made myself, put myself at the center of my life. I know that I've messed up. Help me to put you at the center. Please restore me to yourself and lead me to pleasures that are everlasting through Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Let's pray that if you can please bow your heads as I lead us once again. You can pray this um, in your heart. Dear God, I don't know much, but I know that I need you. I know that I need the love of God in my life. I admit that I put myself at the center of my life. I know that I have messed up. So help me to put you at the center. Please restore me to yourself and lead me to pleasures that are everlasting through Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Amen and amen.